is what Plato was afraid of. He was afraid that there would be forms of communication, and he was particularly concerned about artists and poets, that would get past the rational faculty and get people to behave in ways that doesn't really make any sense. It's really not rational, but it attaches to their emotions. All right, welcome to the 1CA podcast. I will be your host for today. My name is Sean Acosta, and today we have Dr. Ajit Manan, who is the CEO of the award-winning Think and Do Tank Narrative Strategies, professor of politics and global security at Arizona State University, affiliate faculty at the Center for Narrative Conflict Resolution at George Mason University, faculty at the Center for the Future of War, member of the Brain Trust of the Weaponized Narrative Initiative, and author of seven books, including books titled Counterterrorism, Narrative Strategies, Narrative Warfare, and Plato's Fear. Dr. Mon, welcome to the 1CA podcast. Thank you, Sean. I'm happy to be with you. So, Dr. Dr. Mon, to, to start this off, I'd, I'd just like to, to ask a question about um, an article that you wrote for Real Clear Defense in 2018. And the title of that article is Narrative Warfare. In it, you argue that U.S. superiority in kinetic warfare has driven adversaries to a regular means of combating American might. I'd just like to ask, what what evidence uh, are you using to support that idea? Yeah. Well, because of our clearly kinetic city, um, our adversaries are coming around at from various other angles whether they be state adversaries or state-sponsored adversaries or non-state adversaries. Um, terrorism is an example of that. And also forms of influence warfare, what I call narrative warfare, is, uh, is happening because we are kinetically superior and it's not going to behoove the adversary to come at us in a direct physical manner. So they're doing it other ways, and I'm afraid they're doing quite well. No, I I agree. Um, so I'd like to ask a, a, another question to follow up with that, if I could. Then maybe you could describe for the audience um, what a narrative is and what narrative strategy is, and then how does that how does narrative differ from from storytelling? Right, that's a great question, Sean. Um, the way I use narrative is is from an academic background. It's a psychologically based and um, philosophically back backboned theory of identity formation. So narrative is different from stories in that narratives give rise to stories and they're more foundational. So for example, think of a tree. Narrative is like the trunk of the tree. And stories grow out of it like branches grow out of a trunk of a tree. And then leaves are like, you know, messages and other forms of communication. And below the surface of the ground, think of that as the unconscious. So narratives are rooted in the unconscious, but they're above ground, they're conscious, they're just not highly conscious like stories are and like messaging and tweeting and so forth. So another way I describe it to people is that we are born into cultural environments 
that we don't have any choice about. The same way that we're born into physical environments that we don't have any choice about. And I liken the narrative sometimes to gravity in the physical environment. I mean, we're born into a physical environment. Nobody really teaches us about gravity. Even as infants, we learn to maneuver and we learn to sort of negotiate the terrain that we're born into without any sort of formal education. And the same is true in our cultural environments. We're born into it. We are born into narrative environments that are part of our cultures. We really don't need formal education to understand our narrative environment and to maneuver in it and to manipulate it and to live within it. And we don't talk about it a lot. I mean, when did you think about gravity the last time? Um, we, we live in it every day, but we don't talk about it. We don't really think much about it. And at the same time, we're not unconscious of it. We just don't, it's not highly conscious. I think of it at, at, in terms of assumption. We know it's there. We are conscious of it, but we don't think about it a lot, despite the fact we maneuver in it. So the same is true for narrative. Um, it's at the level of assumption. And that is why it's so powerful when it is weaponized. Because what you're weaponizing when you weaponize a narrative is something that people take for granted. They assume. They don't think a lot about it. And if you can manipulate that thing that people assume and is foundational to who they are, well, you've got a powerful narrative. You've got a powerful weapon. So that's the distinction. Stories are more um, conscious. And uh, so let me give you an example of the distinction. In, in American culture and much of Western culture, and if I ask somebody, well, what stories do you live by? They're not going to say, I'm living this heroic quest of a rugged individual. But they're going to tell me a story that maps on to that cultural narrative that we're all very familiar with. So, right. you know, the little guy overcoming the odds, um, the journey myth, you know, the, you know, Rocky Balboa who, who, you know, gets knocked down and gets back up again. I mean, that's the kind of story you're going to hear. I started with nothing. I struggled. I have attained this, I, but I continue to struggle. And that's the kind of story that you're going to hear but it maps on to that cultural narrative. And other people in other cultures are born the same way, you know, into their own cultural narratives that they don't think much about. Um, and if you ask them a story, it'll be a different story, but it'll map on to their cultural narrative. And so if, in communicating, in influencing, um, particularly cross-culturally, we need to know not only what stories they're telling, but what narrative that maps onto. No, that makes sense. And that kind of leads me into my next question. And what, from a, a U.S. government or specifically maybe a Department of Defense or Department of State um, perspective, what intelligence or information do you think is required to create a narrative strategy that's going to be effective? Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question as well. Um, when I teach, I, I, I have made sort of a little formula that's easy for people to remember. And I say narrative equals 
the acronym I use is MICS, M-I-C-S, meaning, identity, content, and structure. So the easiest to understand are content and structure. You know, narrative is about something. That's the content. Structure is the way it plays out. In our culture, it's in Western culture, it's, you know, generally linear structure, beginning, middle, end. So content is what it's about. Structure is the way it plays out. And then meaning and identity are hugely important. And I just spoke to that a little bit. We learn when we're born into cultural environments, we learn through the primary narrative who we're supposed to be um, and what we're supposed to do because of who we're supposed to be. Now, some people take that on and become who they're supposed to be. Some people negotiate that and and accept certain parts of what their culture accepts expects of them um, and not other parts. And some people reject it completely um, and define themselves in opposition, perhaps, to what they're expected to be and what they're expected to do. So that's what narrative identity theory is. Narrative identity is about the way that narratives shape our identity. They also, once we internalize them, they become like a meaning map in our heads. And they will determine how information is processed when it comes in. So they'll determine how it's sorted in our brains, whether it's highly important or dismissible or whatever, some, somewhere in between. And it'll categorize them. Um, and, you know, the, inc- the incoming info. So what we need to do if we are looking to influence a population is we need to know those four elements. Primarily, what is their narrative identity, which will tell us how they process information. And we need to know, you know, what the structure and form of the narrative um, and the content of their primary narrative, just like, you know, the hero's myth for us. When we know that, we can design communications to because we know how they're going to process that communication. So unlike the way I was taught when I was an undergraduate in journalism and communications, I was taught that we want to get a message across as clearly as possible, as intact as it started. We don't want interference in between. So the whole question was how do we get a message from the sender to the receiver in as pure a form as possible. And what we know now in the advancement of cognitive science, and we can actually see how information is received in um, neuroimaging, a lot of the meaning of information is, is made in the receiver. The receiver is not just a blank slate that you send over a message and they receive it the way you intended. The message that you're sending is going to be interpreted by them. And it's going to be interpreted through that cognitive scheme, that internal meaning map that they inherited from their culture. And they did that largely unconsciously, or at least on the level of assumption. So they're not even, just like we're not even, um, very aware of why we process information the way we do. But we need to know that about our adversaries. And, you know, it doesn't hurt to know it about ourselves. 
um, if we're communicating with people and trying to influence people that share our foundational narrative, it's easy to get it right, or at least easier to get it right. But even in that case, it would help us to know why we got it right. And the reason is because we share the way, we share a common way of processing the information. No, that seems like a, you know, the way you're, you're, uh, describing it, it seems like a, it could be a little complex at times. Um, are there, are there any countries that you know of, or maybe some non-state actors that are effective in this narrative warfare at all? Yeah. And I, you know, I don't know that it really requires formal education. It's almost like we have to remember what we take for granted. Um, so terrorist recruiters, for example, are particularly good at this, if they're effective, that is. And if they're not effective, we don't hear much about them. So, I mean, we hear about the effective ones. Um, they understand intimately the narrative identity of their target audience, even when they don't share it. And they form communications that trigger a response that they want, which is by triggering their identity. And then they manipulate it. So, for example, if um, honor is a primary component of the identity that somebody has inherited from their culture, if you can trigger the honor part of their identity, they get emotional. This is now not... Um, highly cognitive functioning. This is emotional functioning. And if you can manipulate that, you can get people to act in certain ways because our behavior, our action, is largely dependent on our identities, who we think we are and what we're supposed to do about it. No, that makes that makes perfect sense, um, the way you're describing it. It is almost kind of... It's intuitive, but you don't... Like you're saying, it's it's unconscious. Like you don't necessarily think about it every day, but um, yeah. Right. Um, right. When I'm teaching my students, I I try to get that clear. It's like I'm not really teaching you something. This is not rocket science, and this is not high tech stuff, and it's not really new. Um, it's ancient, and I make that point in my recent book, Plato's Fear. This is what Plato was afraid of. He was afraid that. There would be forms of communication, and he was particularly concerned about artists and poets, that would get past the rational faculty and get people to behave in ways that doesn't really make any sense. It's really not rational, but it attaches to their emotions. So, I mean, this is ancient wisdom. And all this stuff, I mean, narrative warfare is... A word that I'm using, I use the word narrative because of what we know about cognitive functioning now, but this is an old thing. This is ancient wisdom. We know that influencing populations is very important. We know that even in kinetic battle, you know, outsiking the other guy is very important. If we can avoid physical confrontation, good, but even in it, in the midst of it, um, Influence is important, and the ancients taught us this stuff. We they, this has been around for a long time, 
So it's really, we got to remember the old stuff and, and the, you know, high tech ways in which we battle sometimes. We can't lose track of what we're actually doing and how to influence. So you're talking about um, how we influence populations. You know, the United States marketing industry, is it's known around the world. Uh, American and European media are very effective at selling products to the rest of the world. I mean, look at McDonald's and all these other fast food chains that have just kind of gone rampant throughout. Um, but hasn't the DOD already integrated, you know, Madison Avenue marketing and PR approaches into their own brand of narrative warfare? Or is that is that not true? Well, they've tried to, I think. I mean, I've been sitting in the same room when they did have Madison Avenue types there with me and other people. Um, and I, I, but to answer your question, no, I don't think they have integrated it fully. Um, they try to listen. I'm not sure how well they get it. Um, but I do think that now more than ever is the time for civilians to get involved. And, I, I mean, I think that we in this country in particular think we have this humongous divide between the military who is supposed to protect and defend and civilians who are supposed to be protected and defended. And there is so much room for collaboration, and that is what we need now more than ever. Yeah, we should bring Medicine Avenue in. We should get people who know what they're talking about to do narrative influence. And let me just say, if I may, I'm not talking about info wars. Um, narrative is about the meaning of the information. So, you know, you can do, you can knock off an adversarial, uh, you know, influencer or communicator or um, the PR guy for, you know, Al-Qaeda or whatever. But, but... Uh, that's only stopping information, and it's only stopping it for a very short time. But the narrative warfare is about warfare over the meaning of information. So stopping the information flow isn't going to help much. We need to be able to grasp what that meaning is, adversarial meaning, how our adversaries create meaning out of an event, for example, and alter it for their own benefit, alter the perception of that event for their own benefit. So it's not information, it's the manipulation of information that we're dealing with in narrative warfare. And let me just give you an example of that. Not long ago, ISIS um, claimed responsibility for, well, let me tell you what happened. There was a, a, an incident in Kashmir, um, Indian military went in, there was, they, they offed the guy they were after, just that one person. There was no collateral damage. And one Indian Army officer was killed in that process. So two people dead. ISIS came in and they said, they mixed the truth with their own meaning. So fact, the facts are what I just told you. What they said is, we have now established uh, in American translation an ISIS uh, stronghold in Kashmir. We have now territory. Well, no, they didn't. Um, they claimed responsibility for the offing of one Indian Army officer. I mean, that's all that happened. 
Right. They didn't establish a province, but they mixed the facts with their own take and manipulated that information. And now all of a sudden they're making, you know, worldwide announcements that they have established a province in Kashmir. That is narrative warfare. It's a manipulation of the information, of what the information means. Because those locals, they know that a bad guy got off and they know that there was an officer killed. But whoever gets a hold of that information and tells their story about it is going to have the influence. So, you know, what we do, what we need to do is tell our stories first. Right, I was just going to say that it's, it yeah. seems like whoever gets the story out first, you know, you're talking about counter-narratives earlier, it's a little bit, it's it's hard to uh, overcome those at times. And maybe that's uh, particularly true in countries with high levels of freedom of speech. You know, when citizens yeah. have access to online information, you know, are the, those are probably the most acceptable to weaponize narratives. Would you Would you agree with that or no? Yeah. I would agree. It's hard. And so what we need is to not be reactive, is to start with our own story, tell our own story of of our American present. And I think we need to, and this is perhaps a bit controversial, but we need to admit mistakes of the past because we're not fooling anybody. Um, We need to say something like, look, we're a new country. We're trying our best. We are an experiment in democracy. We are an experiment in doing the best for the most number of people we can. We're an experiment in tolerance, religious tolerance, and racial tolerance, and so forth. We are an experiment, and we've made mistakes. But we're still trying. And that is that is our foundational narrative, is it not? I mean, right. of the, the heroic quest of the person who gets knocked down and gets back up. And that is our cultural narrative. And we have to do a better job of telling it. Because if we do, then the way our own civilian population, for one thing, and others may interpret the news is through that meaning map that they have in our heads that we, as the United States, have established. We have to tell our own story, create that meaning map that is consistent with our culture so that when people have incoming information, it will be processed in a way that is consistent with our ideals. No, that makes that makes perfect sense. Um, so I'd ask then, once we develop these narrative strategies, how do we gauge whether they're whether they're working, you know, particularly Department of Defense, they're very, very heavy on quantitative data and yes, you know, and pushing for future yeah. operations. So how do we how do we gauge whether the strategy is working or not? Yeah. So first, we have to have, have to have the right intelligence to make, and we just discussed that to make the strategy. We can't have the strategy unless we have the information. So we make the strategy. And then we go forth. Now, how do you, you, your question is kind of like, how do you measure a negative? Um, you know, if, if we catch a terrorist with um, explosives in their trunk and we stop them from doing what, you know, detonating wherever, then we know we had a good day. If the terrorist 
never put those explosives in their trunk because they were never recruited because the recruitment didn't work. It didn't take, it was not influential because we got there first. Or even that recruiter wasn't even here. That recruiter was out of a job before anything got started. How do you measure that? That's a good question. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I kind of, and if we could measure it, it would take a long time. You know, how do you measure stability? Um, you know, it, it takes a while and there will be ups and downs, but what we will have is a stable culture ourselves and what we will have worldwide, hopefully, or at least largely regionally stability. Right. Now that's a, that's an interesting concept. Um, and, and definitely difficult to measure, I would say for sure. Um, mm -hmm. So, Dr. Mon, what I'd like to do now is take a quick break, but when we return, I'd like to talk about, uh, you know, maybe provide some context for our audience um, sure. and maybe break down the development, delivery, and evolution of what a narrative strategy could be, uh, maybe in like a, a, a theoretical example. Uh, okay. And we'll, we'll do that right after the break. All right. Check out the Civil Affairs Call for Issue Papers. The deadline to submit a paper is August 28th. Civil Affairs can find better integration as a force for influence, collaboration, and competition for convergent threats and challenges for multi-domain and information operations, now called Joint All-Domain Operations. As the nation's warrior diplomats, the CA Corps must modernize especially for gray zone competition and foster a learning organization. It must reinforce supported command understanding of CA core competencies and capabilities at tactical and operational levels. It must seize opportunities to be a greater force for influence through national strategic initiatives like the Stabilization Assistance Review and the Global Engagement Center. And it must help build an industrial base in applied social sciences and related technologies. The Civil Affairs Association and its partners invite civil military professionals to submit originally written issue papers. The deadline is August 28th. For more information, including paper guidelines, visit civilaffairs, all one word, assoc.org. All right, welcome back. Uh, before the break, we were discussing with Dr. Aman, uh, or I'm, I apologize, Dr. Aman, about the... Uh, the way that we gauge narrative strategies, how do we measure them? And then we, we went into uh, maybe providing a breakdown of the development, delivery, and evolution for uh, a narrative strategy for our listeners, you know, put it into some context. So, Dr. Mon, for example, let's say I want to convince residents of Iraq that, you know, the Islamic State is weak. Its residents should deepen their trust within the local and regional governments in Iraq. You know, where do we start with developing that narrative? Okay. Um, I'd first start with what anthropologists tell us, because they have a good grasp of the cultural terrain. And then we listen to stories of locals. And we need, obviously, feet on the ground for that. Um, and, you know, um, civil affairs folks might be good for that. Plain old civilians might be good for that. Um, and we, we take that cultural knowledge, we find out what the stories are, we trace them back down to their 
narrative soil? What is the narrative? What is what is the narrative that those stories rest on? And we develop a strategy based on that about you know an influence strategy essentially, and it, you know we take into those the mics the the formula I just gave you is a good way to begin. It's a bit more complicated, but simply put, you know, we need to know how they identify themselves, the particular target audience, how they have created their identities, what they identify with and what they don't identify with in their cultural inheritance, how they process meaning, how they tell stories, how they structure them, what kind of content they have. And then we look forward to the end goal. What is it that we want? Not what do we want to influence, what, uh, what do we want to message, but what result do we want? And then we walk it back. And we design a strategy to communicate to the people in a way that triggers their identity, is consistent with their identity, it maps on to their own cultural inheritance, and encourages them to proceed to do whatever it is take whatever actions we want them to take that will further the goals so that we intend. So if it's don't support the Islamic State, well, for example, how are their identities divergent from the Islamic State? Um, we got to be very clear about what their identities are in the first place. And I want to say here, something here is that we have to be careful because just because we know we have cultural information doesn't mean we have personal information. And lots of individuals differ from radically oftentimes right. from what their, their cultural inheritance is. We need to know that. And why? Because even when that's true, that doesn't mean that they, just because they differ from their cultural inheritance, they're going to do something radical like join the Islamic State or support it. Um, it just, we need to know where that division is so that we can speak to that. It's what I call inter-narrative identity. Um, there are people who formulate their identities from something in between other cultural, uh, you know, their identity, and maybe they're very westernized. Maybe they, you know, want to come to America. Maybe they, so we have to speak to, to individuals that we're trying to influence and don't just assume that, you know, they're, you know, they're Iraqi, so we know all about them when we have, their, when we have anthropological information. So that's what, I, so that's what I, we, we decide what, where we want to be and we walk ourselves back to designing a strategy that will influence population to act in ways that are consistent with, with our goals. So it seems like there should almost be, uh, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, like a, an overall strategic narrative, and then within yeah. those you could have like subsets at, at the tactical level if you if you would just to kind of, um, you know, exactly. influence these different populations within the, within that country or region wherever you're at. Yes, it's what my colleague Paul Cobal calls a family of narratives. Um, we need. Even for our own folks that are on the ground there doing the work, they need a narrative to understand what it is they're doing and what the end goal is. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we need 
specific narratives that all fit together into a grand strategic narrative. So now that now that we understand all this, our audience understands all this, you know, what's next? Um, where, where do you think we should go from here? And then what, what tools do you think are available that we could use to deliver the narrative? Yeah, I think it's so imperative that we as the United States, you know, I'm speaking as an American, that we get a very clear strategic, it is naturally, I mean, there's no such thing as a narrative without a strategy. All narratives are interested. There's no such thing as a disinterested or neutral narrative. So we need to get a narrative and get clear about what it is and communicate that effectively to the world. And I don't think, unfortunately, I don't think we are doing that. I think we're seeing as largely inconsistent. And, you know, our, our actions have to follow our words. And our words have to be consistent with our narrative. And... I don't know. From my perspective, it shouldn't be that hard because we do share a narrative foundation. It's just the meaning sometimes is contorted, has been weaponized, even in our own country. So in order for foreign influence, we have to get clear here ourselves. And it would behoove us. I mean, all the stuff that I'm talking about, about understanding who people are at the level of assumption, it would behoove us for us to understand who we are at the level of assumption. What assumptions are we making? What have we inherited without assume, without even thinking about it? Some of us think more about that than others. Some of us radically differ from from what we have inherited. Um, when people radically differ, they're, they're, they're very thoughtful. A lot of people aren't thinking about what it is we've inherited as Americans. What is our national narrative? And what is it that we have assumed? Let's get clear about that. Let's bring that out of the level of assumption and 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 talk about it. Instead of talking stories, let's talk narratives. Right. Who are we as a people? And let's get clear about that. And and project that out into the world because we have the capacity for tremendous influence we have had before. We just have to get straight here. Right. No, I, I, I'd agree with that. Um, so from a, from a U.S. military perspective, you know, the, the Department of Defense and in particular, the, uh, speaking as a civil affairs and, um, from the civil affairs regiment, we we usually talk or have people that specialize in, in information operations, and, and civil affairs kind of falls under that as an information related capability. Right. Are we missing the point by looking at it from the perspective of information versus influence? Yes, precisely. You got it, Sean. It is in, it is influence that we need. Um, information will help us get influence. We need the right information. We need the right intelligence. But influence, I mean, I.O. ought to be influence operations rather than information operations, in my opinion. That's what we need to do. And it needs to be, I mean, I, I think influence needs to lead. We've got to have a narrative strategy that even determines what our kinetics are. Right. No, I. Uh, that makes 
you know, that makes sense to me. Um, from what I've seen, you know, when you talk to people, particularly within the U.S. Army or any other branch of the Department of Defense, when I say information operations, a lot of times people turn to cyber, which is yeah. a related field, no doubt, but has nothing to do with, well, I don't want to say it has nothing, but it has very little to do with, with what we're with what we're talking about here. Um, yeah. Obviously, there's yeah. some cyber-related um information or influence going on through social media or other other means on there but um generally that's they're talking more about protecting uh information networks or infrastructure within our own you know territories or or what have you which is so important right so important but that's not that's not what that's not going to lead right precisely that's a defensive posture and um we need we need defense we certainly do but the Department of Defense, true to name, um, is really, I think, in a you know operating out of a defensive posture, and you know to the extent as we we just talked about, to the extent that they're engaging narrative at all, it's in terms of counter narrative, which is just playing catch up with our adversaries. We have to do better than that. We can't just go around plugging the holes they blow in our narrative, you know. We have to step out front and lead and let them try to catch up to us. So I'll ask a final question then. How how do you suggest that the U.S. and European uh, forces evolve our capabilities to compete in that narrative warfare and then to step out front and, you know, and kind of lead this, this effort and, and get out in front right. of it and versus playing defense? Well, I think we, we start with a, a new paradigm, and I don't know how ready uh, we are for that, but I would hope that we would get ready. Um, now's the time. Uh, we, we need to hurry up. Um, we need to start with a new paradigm, and we need to understand what influence is and how it works. And, you know, narrative warfare is what we're in. So if we think that we're in kinetic battles or we're in, you know, battles over information, we're fighting the wrong fight because our adversaries are fighting a narrative war. They are developing meaning that is weaponized against our identities. And that's the battle. That's the war. Uh, you know, cyber is a battle. There are all these other battlegrounds, but the war we're in is the narrative one. It's about meaning and influence. I couldn't agree more. Dr. Mon, uh, we, I really appreciate you coming on to the 1CA podcast. Um, uh, sure. the, the, the information and the discussion we've had today has been very insightful for me um, and very informative. So I just want to say thank you for coming on to the 1CA podcast. You are most welcome, Sean. It's been a pleasure. If you enjoyed this podcast and others, please remember to subscribe and hit like. So the 1CA podcast team gets important feedback and support. The Civil Affairs Association is a proud sponsor of the 1CA podcast and the Unomia Journal. You can find more podcasts like this on the www.1capodcast.org. Again, that's www.1capodcast.org. The Unomia Journal is expanding its content to reach a broader audience and engagement across defense and governments to include other partners and allied countries.
New sections in the Warrior Scholar Corner and the Team Room aim to deliver content useful to our members. Check out the Unomia Journal at www.unomiajournal.com. Again, that's www.unomiajournal.com. If you're not a member yet, visit the main CA Association website and find a new range of membership options. Starting with cadets or midshipmen, membership is only $10 a year. We then have our basic annual membership at $40 per year and two years at $60 or finally a three-year membership for only $80. Our most popular and best value option is a lifetime membership at a one-time price of $200. Be a member and don't miss out. 2020 is a big year with transformational changes underway. Lots of new opportunities for members. Don't miss out.